Open your Bibles again this morning to John chapter 4. John chapter 4 as we continue on, having moved away directly from the woman at the well now to the aftermath and the fallout from her encounter with Jesus. So we're looking this morning at verses 31 through 38. John records these words under inspiration of the Holy Spirit for us, preserving them for us even to today. He says, Meanwhile, the disciples were urging him, saying, Rabbi, eat. But he said to them, I have food to eat that you do not know about. So the disciples were saying to one another, No one brought him anything to eat, did he? Jesus said to them, My food is to do the will of him who sent me, and to accomplish his work. Do you not say there are yet four months, and then comes the harvest? Behold, I say to you, lift up your eyes, and look on the fields, that they are white for harvest. Already he who reaps is receiving wages and is gathering fruit for life eternal, so that he who sows and he who reaps may rejoice together. For in this case the saying is true, one sows and another reaps. I sent you to reap that for which you have not labored. Others have labored, and you have entered into their labor. Gracious God and Father, help us now as... We open your word to have eyes to see, ears to hear, hearts to believe. And by your power, transform us into the very likeness of your Son, the Lord Jesus Christ, who is our living, not only water, but bread, the sufficiency of all that we need. And may we find Christ precious this morning. May your people feast richly upon who he is. And leave here changed because we have tasted and seen that you indeed, Lord, are good. How blessed is the man who puts his trust in you. We ask this all for your honor and glory. In Jesus' name, amen. It's often called the school of life. The school of life is populated by a great number of teachers. Some human, some experiential, but all beneficial. And as Christians, we live our life in such a way that we hope to be, and by God's grace, become more and more aware of the gifts of grace that God has placed in each one of us that helps us to learn from Him and to learn the lessons that He has given us. And when we think about the life lessons that we learned and we think about the teachers that God has graciously, sovereignly placed into our life, it doesn't take very long to begin moving down that road of reflection until you suddenly realize that many of those lessons didn't come soaring into your life on the wings of smashing success. Many of the lessons in life that we learn come from the painful mistakes we make. We learn better at times what not to do than what to do. 
we learn from our failures as well as our successes, but it feels like so many times in life, it's the failures that we learn best from. But as believers, there's really no such thing as failure. Because in God's gracious sovereignty and in God's providence, there is no such thing as ultimate failure, is there? Because we believe what Romans 8.28 says, that God works all things for our good. Do you believe that? I, I pray that you do, that God works all things Together, he weaves them together for the good of those who love him, to those who are the ones called according to his purposes. Dear Christian, you ultimately cannot fail if you belong to Christ. Because you are his and he will work and uses everything together for good. Maybe not in the immediate, does it feel good? Maybe not in the the present context, in that moment, do you feel that it's going to be good? But ultimately, we know God's going to use it for good. Some way, somehow, as only God can and as only God knows best how to do, God uses all things for good. And so while we seek, as the Apostle Paul says, to be pleasing to the Lord, to walk blamelessly before Him and with Him, Even our mistakes, loved ones, even our misunderstandings, even our, quote, failures are met ultimately with grace, the grace of learning because of the sufficiency of Jesus Christ. If it were not for Jesus, then yes, there would be failures. They would be fatal and they would be final. But as the disciples here in this passage this morning find out failure for them to understand and to comprehend the things of God, it is not fatal, nor is it final. God is working all things, even their mistakes, to be for good, to be learned from, and to be deployed into their life and made useful For his kingdom purposes. And so in in, in that frame of mind. And in that uh, position. We find ourselves. Don't we so many times all of us. Not unlike the disciples that we just read about. Missing the point. Making mistakes. Misunderstandings. And yet by the grace of God. Here is Jesus. Shining in the midst of misunderstanding. Shining in the midst of mistake. Why? Because of his glorious sufficiency. That he will not be trumped. He will not be defeated in his mission. He will accomplish good for us. And so this morning, I want you to leave. This is my hope and my prayer for you. To leave this morning as we have entered in and just finished our first week of a new year. I want you to go through the rest of this year convinced joyously celebrating, reveling in, celebrating the sufficiencies that are in Jesus Christ. To live your life the rest of this year, lost in the wonder and the praise of a life that God has birthed you into through His Son. 
Like the woman at the well, sins forgiven, restored to fellowship with the living God. And like the men who are about to learn this morning, a life where everything is useful in the kingdom of God. Even the misunderstandings and even the mistakes are useful. So let's jump in this morning into verse 31. I want you to, first of all, to see that there is a misunderstanding among the disciples regarding lesser things. Look in verses 31 to 33. You re- Let me just set the context here. The disciples have left during Jesus' conversation with the woman at the well. They have been sent into the city to proc- procure food for Jesus. In verse 27, they make their way back into the scene. But they don't make an overwhelmingly positive re-entry into the story. In fact, it's quite negative. They, they, They look at the woman, why are you here? They look at Jesus, why are you talking to her? Don't you know who she is? She's a Samaritan woman. I mean, what gives, Jesus? This is not how it's supposed to go. The woman leaves, over-enthused with what Christ has done in her. She's got to go tell all the people whom she has previously sinned with, sinned against, that she's met a man, and they need to come meet him too. She's overjoyed at who Christ is. Meanwhile, the disciples are scolding Christ for doing what Christ came to do. And now we reach verse 31, and here's the food that they've worked so hard to procure. They've gone into the city, they've brought it back, and and they offer the food to Jesus. And Jesus looks at the food, probably bread of some sort, and he says to them, what is this? I have food to eat you know nothing about. You know nothing about it. And they're baffled. Wait, 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 wait a minute. Did somebody, I mean, did DoorDash show up while we were gone? Did, did, did one of you have something you left for him and you didn't tell the rest of us? I mean, how does he not need food? What food is he talking about? They, they've entered into another great adventure, as they often do, of missing the point. We're at a great time of tension here. Not only have the disciples displayed their ignorance, but we're waiting for a woman of faith to return. She doesn't know all the facts. She's not graduated from seminary, so to speak. But she knows enough to know that this man has changed her life. She has gone to get others. They are on their way back according to the previous passage. They're making their way out to Jesus while his disciples are perplexed at Jesus. Seems opposite, doesn't it? Shouldn't it be the disciples who are the ones getting it? And the woman and the villagers who are so struggling with it? I mean, after all, the disciples are with him day and night. Day after day, night after night. And so as we await the arrival of of these two contradictions, the disciples on the one hand, the woman and the villagers on the other, who are going to come, and according to verse 39, many of them are going to be changed just like she was changed. And so in the midst of what has come before, in the midst of their prejudiced thinking that John exposes, and again, remember, bless John's heart, he 
He's one of them. And so he knows whereof he speaks. How did John know what they were thinking? Because John had been thinking it too. And so in the midst of all of that. Stands the untainted excitement of this woman. She's found the Messiah. And her actions embody that, don't they? She runs back to tell. They stay there and question. What a contrast. What a contrast. But for both the disciples and for the woman, they they both need to get to the point, and I think she's arrived there quicker than they have, to find a sufficiency in Christ. They're still looking at him through earthly lenses. She is not. She's pretty convinced this is the Messiah. He's sufficiently the Messiah. And so against that backdrop of misunderstanding, John uses it to highlight truth. And John often does that as you read through and as we go through the rest of this gospel. That's how John teaches us. He teaches us so many times against the backdrop of confusion, of misunderstanding. Here the misunderstanding is over physical food. The disciples may have felt superior to the woman over cultural and religious and ethnic matters. But they both make mistakes. They have misunderstandings. And the disciples... Mistake is no better than hers. She is just who she is. They misunderstand the spiritual realities. They confuse the material for the spiritual. The woman wanted to talk about physical water. They want to talk about physical food. Both labor to provide for Jesus in varying degrees what he obviously needs. And yet both are met with rebuke of reality. That Jesus had something infinitely better to give her and to give them. So as you look at the text this morning, the disciples in verse 31, they they issue Jesus a command to eat. Jesus, eat the food we just brought you. Jesus, we worked hard for this food. Eat it. Jesus' response is, number one, not to eat. Number two, to rebuke their thinking, to correct their misunderstanding. Jesus begins to do, as he often does as well, to use something we can't understand. He uses object lessons and metaphors. And it's going to continue through the conversation. Jesus says, I have food that you know nothing about. Let's not be confused about lesser things here, guys. There's something more important. You have no experience with the food that I'm about to speak with. Now, here's the the, the stinging part of the lesson. They should have known. The food Jesus is talking about is food that as conscientious Jewish people, they should have known all about. The Messiah, the kingdom, God's kingdom purposes, all of these kind of things. And Jesus says to them, 
you guys have missed the point completely. You you may have intellectual knowledge, but you don't have experiential knowledge. That's the word that he uses here in verse 32. You have not experienced the food I'm talking about. In other words, it's not made its way from the head to the heart. You should have. You've been with me long enough now. You've seen me do the miracles. And yet you still have no experience with what I'm dealing with. It is not physical food. They're still baffled. They're they're absolutely confused. And yet they're... In their misguided position, Jesus remains sufficient. He's going to correct them. He's going to give them something even better. So look at verse 34 with me. Jesus says to them, here's the real food. My food is to do the will of him who sent me and to accomplish his work. Now listen, you and I this morning have certain things that as believers God calls us to be, that God calls us to do. But we will never be able to do what Jesus is speaking of. We can't save ourselves, we can't save others. And Jesus says, yet my food is to do the will of him who sent me to accomplish his purposes this is my food guys it's not bread and it's not fish and it's not whatever else you have in the bag over there my food the thing that sustains me is to do the will of him who sent me and it's not physical food at all now it's hard to fault them for their confusion isn't it i mean we're talking jesus you said you were hungry and he probably was Jesus, you said you're thirsty, and he was. But this isn't ultimately what he needs to get to. What does Jesus mean by food, then? What food are we talking about? Well, to understand the definition of Jesus' food and its superior, meaning more than just physical sustenance, we need to go back and see how this idea of food had been understood. And again, this is not hidden from the disciples, They knew their Old Testament. It's not a new idea. If we go back to Deuteronomy chapter 8, verse 3, we read this. He humbled you and let you be hungry and fed you with manna, which you did not know. Well, that sounds familiar. Nor did your fathers know, but that he might make you understand that man does not live by bread alone, but man lives by everything that proceeds out of the mouth of the Lord. That's what we're talking about, guys. We're talking about something bigger and more sustaining and more nourishing than even manna. What was manna? Manna was physical provision, was it not? But let me ask you this question. Was manna ultimately sufficient? And the answer is no, it wasn't. Why? Because they had to go out every day and collect new manna. 
And on the day before the Sabbath, they had to collect double. And, and miraculously, God didn't allow it to spoil on the Sabbath. But if they kept it for longer than a day, what happened to it? It went bad. It was insufficient. And Jesus has to have this in mind. He's saying, guys, listen, bread might be good for a day, but my sufficiency in the bread I speak of and the food I speak of is kind of like that bread of the Sabbath, that it's going to last longer. It is extremely more sufficient. And my food is to accomplish that kind of sufficiency. To obey the will of my Father that I might feed more than the body, but feed the soul. And so if we are to preempt here by way of application, what's the application for us? If we can't do this, if we can't be this kind of bread, if if, if this is outside of our realm, what is our food in response? Our food is this, to feast upon Christ. Who did the will of the Father. Who is the everlasting manna, if you will. To know Him. To eat His mission. To eat His work. That He accomplished so sufficiently. Job says in Job 23 verse 12, I have not departed from the command of His lips. I have treasured the words of His mouth. More than my necessary food. Again, the commands of God, the words of God, the life-giving word of God. Job says, I treasure that. I need that more than I need bread. And so the disciples, as they are listening to Jesus speak, Hey guys, you don't need bread. You need the word. You need living word. You need living water. You need living truth. You need me. The ultimate source of nourishment who has come to do and accomplish the will of my Father. It's not the first time Jesus has had this discussion, is it? Go back to the very beginning of his ministry in Matthew chapter 4. Jesus has this conversation, but he doesn't have it with disciples. He has it with who? Satan. Satan is trying to throw Jesus off of his necessary food. Jesus is trying, or Satan, I'm sorry, is trying to distract and destroy the mission of Jesus. And in Matthew 4, 1, then Jesus was led up by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. And after he had fasted 40 days and 40 nights, then he became hungry. And the tempter came and said to him, If you are the Son of God, command that these stones become bread. But he answered and said, It is written. Where is it written? Deuteronomy 8.3 Man shall not live on bread alone, but on every sufficient, as it were, word that proceeds out of the mouth of God. Hey, guys. I may have to have a bite of bread every now and then to stay alive. But my real bread, my real sustenance, my real purpose is to eat the food of him who sent me. The food of his word, the food of his mission. And Jesus does that sufficiently. It's not only enough for me to do that, it is supreme in doing that. 
It won't be long. And we'll hear Jesus say this in John 6.35. I am the bread of life. He who comes to me will not hunger, hunger, and he who believes in me will never thirst. Well, that just wraps up the, the, the entirety of John 4. We were talking about water, then bread, and Jesus says, you drink from me, you eat from me, you'll never hunger or thirst. Why, I'm the sufficient one. I am better than that bread. Not only that, but he says this, but I say to you that you have seen me and yet you do not believe. Well, that's here too, isn't it? In John 4. All that the Father gives me will come to me and the one who comes to me I will certainly not cast out. Gracious sufficiency. Again, verse 38, John 6, For I have come down from heaven not to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me. To bring life, to bring true sustenance to you. This is the will of him who sent me, that of all he has given me, I lose nothing. But I raise it up on the last day. So this is the will of my Father, that everyone who beholds the Son and believes in him will have eternal life, and I myself will raise him up on the last day. It's identical to the conversation we're having here in John 4, 31 through 33. This misunderstanding, and now verse 34, this great provision. I'm here to do the will of him who sent me. I'm here to accomplish that will. And what is that will, brothers and sisters? Listen, because this is for you. This is for your life. That will, that mission is this, that Jesus will never lose you. Those who are Christ, those who are in him by faith, he will never lose. Thank God he didn't just come and eat physical bread, but came to do the will of his father. Because in doing the will of his father, he became sufficient bread for us. And we can never be lost. Disciples are totally missing the point. It's for them that he's come and done this. It is to their ultimate benefit that all of this is transpiring. Jesus' food is the sovereign will of the Father that ends up in our salvation and our security. What a glorious Savior we have. I won't ask you to raise your hand, nor will I look up at the moment. How many of you parents have ever lost your children? Because even the looks on your face give you away. (laughs) We have. We have. Is there anything that is more frightening, honestly, parents, than losing your children, even for a few minutes? We happened to be at SeaWorld when one of ours... We won't say which. Decided that she (laughs) needed to go on her own personal shopping adventure at two years old. I nearly needed the AED machine. It's terrifying, isn't it? But Jesus says, when I come and I do the will of my father... And I eat that bread, none of you will be lost. 
And it's not just that we are not lost. There are enemies that are actively seeking to cause us to be lost. First Peter 5.8, Satan like a roaring lion roams the earth seeking whom he may devour. You can't be lost to that. There are the weaknesses of our own doubt like Thomas at the end of this very gospel who doubts you can't be lost because of that. The reality is that because Jesus came and ate his father's bread, doing the will of his father, not one of his children can be lost. No matter how hard Satan tries, no matter how unfaithful you are, he remains faithful to us. What a sufficient Savior. He came to do the will of his father. Authority was granted to him because he was submitting to the authority of his father. And he is thus able to offer us sufficient, satisfying, spiritual bread, spiritual life. Brothers and sisters, when we have been and are sustained by this miraculous and otherworldly provision... We will be fully satisfied. We, and not until then, will we be fully satisfied. When we learn to live on the sufficiency of the living word, then and only then can we become fully satisfied. Praise God that Jesus is not distracted in his work. But he came to determine, he came to, notice what he says here in verse 34. Jesus said to them, my food is to do the will of him who sent me and to accomplish. The word accomplish here is the same root word for the statement that Jesus will make in John chapter 19 verse 30. It is finished. To tell us die. It's the same root word here. Jesus says, I have come to Finish it. To secure it once and for all. To provide a sufficient living bread to my people. Jesus will speak of it again in the same language in John chapter 17 verse 4. And I can't wait to get there. Because Jesus, think about this. When Jesus is praying, he's not yet been arrested. He's not yet suffered. But he's praying to his father. And here's what he says in John chapter 17, verse 4. Father, I have finished the work which you have given me to do. So sufficient is the work of Jesus. He can speak of it as already being accomplished, even though he hasn't started the final chapter yet. So sufficient is Christ. That he can already say, I have finished it. What a determined Savior to save us. That he would speak like that. And now the conversation shifts a bit as we come to verse 35 down through the end of our passage this morning. 
just as the disciples had had the opportunity to serve Jesus by bringing him physical bread. So now Jesus doesn't rebuke them. He doesn't say to them, hey, listen, you flunked the test. You you, you again fell prey to misunderstanding. I'm done with you. Go get me some, some guys that can actually learn. He doesn't do that. Rather, now he invites them that just as they served him with physical bread, he invites them to join him in feeding others with his sufficient spiritual bread. Notice what he says. Do you not say, now this is again a turn in the conversation, but still using the same metaphor as of food, particularly wheat. Do you not say yet that there are four months and then comes the harvest? Behold, I'm telling you right now, look up, lift up your eyes, look on the fields. There they are. They're right there. And they're white already for harvest. And I'm telling you now, already, right now, he who reaps is receiving the wages And is gathering fruit for eternal life. Oh, we're not talking about loaves. We're talking about eternal life now. But already he's gathering fruit unto or for eternal life. So that he who sows and he who reaps may rejoice together. Notice the miracle there. Instantaneous sow and reap. For in this case, the saying is true, one sows and another reaps. I sent you to reap that for which you have not labored. Others have labored and you have entered into their labor. Jesus anticipates in this final demonstration of sufficiency, he motivates him to labor, but he anticipates the question to be answered in the affirmative in verse 35 do you not say and it is true that there are four months you plant and then comes the harvest and that's about the time it takes isn't it from the time of planting to the time of harvesting where they lived it was about four months and jesus says to them isn't that what you say isn't that how it works yes lord that's that's how it works The farmer goes out, he tills the ground. The sower comes in behind the farmer, he sows the seed. And then we wait. We pray for rain. We pull the weeds. We put the manure out. We do whatever we need to to cause the crops to grow. But but it takes, that's about right, four months. And then we get to harvest. And and Jesus says, "No, no, when you sow... Is it not so that when you put the seed in the ground, you expect it to come up? Well, yes, Lord. Why would we do it if we didn't expect it to work? So you sow with confident expectation. Yes, Lord, we sow with confident expectation that it will not be in vain. And then four months, you know, we go through the natural process. It germinates. And then it grows. And then it blooms. And then the fruit comes. Yes, Lord, four months. And then Jesus gives them somewhat of mental whiplash. And he says, look. Look. Behold. In the Greek, it's an exclamatory statement. Look, 
Look! Where? Where? Jesus says, lift up your eyes. The harvest is now. Some scholars say that Jesus had this conversation with the disciples at sowing season. So that they're baffled again at what he's saying. What do you mean we just sowed? How can we already be reaping? Oh, that's right. We're not talking about physical things anymore. We're talking about spiritual things. And Jesus immediately gets to that, doesn't he? Because notice what he says. The fields are white to harvest. The harvest is already here. And already the one who reaps is receiving wages and is gathering fruit for life eternal. Hey guys, remember the food is not physical, it's spiritual. And the food that I produce, that spiritual food, doesn't need four months. I work how I work, and I work when I work. And I'm here to tell you this, we just got to Samaria. I just sowed the seed, and already, here comes the harvest. It may well be. It may well be, because we are told in the passage before that the city was on its way. The passage after says that they are there and believe. It may well be that Jesus, engaging his men finally getting through to them that this is not physical but spiritual, causes them to look down the road and to see the woman at the head of a great congregation who are coming to Jesus and he says, there's your harvest. One conversation with the sufficient sovereign Savior yields an entire city coming to know me. Guys, join me. Join me. I've sown it already. Perhaps he's referring to the the, the woman. He's saying, I've already received wages. I sowed and immediately I began to reap. And I've already reaped that one. And now here comes the rest of the field. Guys, look up. Well, Jesus, how does that happen? Doesn't this take time? Not when the Lord of the harvest is present. Not when the sufficient Savior is here. I have sown and now we reap. And it's not just barely penetrating the ground. It's white. It's ready. I have given all that needs to be given. I've sown, I've fertilized, I've watered, I've prepared, I've caused it to bloom. And now guys just get in there and start harvesting. Why? Because I'm sufficient. I'm so much more sufficient than anything you could ever imagine. How do we know that, Jesus? Because I've already harvested some. What did that look like? Oh, I don't know. She was about this high. Had a water pot, but she left it. It's right there. And now here comes your harvest. Now here comes your harvest. Coming because this woman discovered the sufficiency of Jesus. He was better than physical water. His disciples are learning he's better than physical bread. What a joy. As Jesus beckons them to join him in the harvest. And again, this should not have been altogether surprising to these men. 
Because in Amos chapter 9, verse 13, Amos prophesies a day that is coming. And he says this, Behold, days are coming, says the Lord, when the plowman will overtake the reaper. And the treader of grapes, him who sows the seed. And the mountains will drip sweet wine and all the hills will be dissolved. There's coming a day when the reaper and the plower and the sower are all in the field at the same time. And they're tripping over each other because the harvest is plenteous. Why is it plenteous? Because the one who ultimately sows Jesus, the sufficient one, is more than abundant. You go out and you put out one seed, you get one plant. I put one seed and a whole village comes. That's my sufficiency. And when that happens, I will lead all of this great harvest, according to Hebrews 2, I will lead this great harvest as a congregation in worship of a sufficient God who sent me. There's great joy, guys. There's great joy in what's coming down the road in this white harvest. The great sower of our faith, Jesus, and all of his divine sufficiency and all of his glory, unfailingly, sows the seed. And now we reap. And now we reap. Notice what Jesus says. You want, you want proof, guys, that this gospel, this glorious redemption, doesn't have anything to do with you? It has all to do with me. I am the first fruits. You know, Jesus is called the first fruits of the resurrection, the first fruits of our redemption. You sow him, it just goes crazy. You want proof it's not us? I sent you to reap that which you have not labored for. I sent you into the field to get what I have planted. And no, it's not a burden to go into the field, it's a joy. It's a joy. And that harvest, because I planted it, cannot fail. Get in there. As an act of rejoicing. And pick the harvest. And point them to me who sowed. You want to know how gracious Jesus is? He doesn't chastise them for their prejudice in the previous passage. He doesn't berate them for their lack of understanding. He doesn't fail them because they have forgotten their Old Testament that they grew up in synagogue memorizing. He says, come on, guys. Let's go. What a great joy is yours. A sufficient God has gone before you. Now join me in reaping what I have sown. And maybe, just maybe, the word of God comes to their mind finally. Because this sounds an awful lot like Deuteronomy chapter 6 and verse 10. 
as God is preparing his people to go into the promised land, to reap the goodness and the sufficiency and the provision that he offered, says this, Then it shall come about when the Lord your God brings you into the land which he swore to your fathers, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, to give to you great and splendid cities which you did not build. And houses full of good things which you did not fill. And hewn cisterns which you did not dig. And vineyards and olive trees which you did not plant. And you eat and are satisfied. Then watch yourself that you do not forget the Lord. Yahweh. After all, it was he who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. Hey guys, I'm sending you into a harvest you didn't plant, but I did. By my spirit, there is a harvest coming. Jump in. Why? Because it's laborious and we have to have a job? No. Because it's your great privilege to join in that which will become the greatest cause of worship for all of eternity. Jesus saved sinners. I came to seek and to save that which was lost. I put in the seed with this woman and now look what's coming. Skip down to verse 39. This is for next time. From that city, many, many believed. That harvester came in full. Those disciples discovered something far greater than physical bread from the bakery. They discovered a sufficient Savior that day. Join, join me. I'm sure they were somewhat embarrassed. (laughs) Somewhat embarrassed. Somewhat still perplexed. And yet they could not be confused. Jesus is sufficient. He uses the Samaritan woman in all of her sin and all of her shame. He removes that. He sends her as really one of the first missionaries sends her into the village. She comes back with the village eager to know the man that had so changed her life. And now he uses a bunch of prejudiced, hard-headed, dull Jewish fishermen. And he says, listen guys, I want you to join in too. I want you to taste what it's like to know the sufficient Savior. Reap what I've sown. You know, Jesus is gone now. Hasn't been here in some 2,000 years. But are we aware of the sufficiency of his seed? I mean, think about it. On this earth for only 33 years. Wasn't high in this world's estimation. Wasn't an earthly king 
Not yet. He was the lowliest of the low. He didn't possess anything. He didn't even have a place to lay his head. To call his own. And yet the seed that he dropped into this world continues to bear fruit upon fruit upon fruit the world over. Why? Because he's sufficient. He changed history. Why? Because he's sufficient. And our task today is to take the seed that he planted, the word of God, and to give it out as liberally as we can. To everyone who will hear. And we plant the seed. Of the sufficiency of Christ. And the harvest will keep coming. Why? Because that's how God determined it would happen. I've mentioned this before. Let me mention it again. I saw a little sign a number of years ago. And the sign simply asked this question. What would you attempt if you knew you could not fail? What would you attempt if you knew you could not fail? I don't know any answer that can adequately answer that question. Except this, to sow the seed of a sufficient Savior and a saving gospel. It can't fail. We cast that bread out, it's going to come back. We tell people who Jesus is, we show them who Jesus is. They may not believe right away, or they might. But one thing is for sure, God honors His Son and God honors His Word. You want to know what you can do that you are guaranteed not to fail in, and that is to proclaim a sufficient Savior. You cannot fail in doing that. So why don't we do it? Here's why. Because we're like the disciples. We think the Christian life and we think the gospel is about so many other things. And we miss the one thing. The one thing that really matters. A a sufficient Savior. Hey, look up. The fields are widened to harvest. God has a people that he will redeem. He's already sown the sufficient seed of Christ. Get in there. Point others to him. Watch the grain fall off the head because it's so ripe, ready to be picked. When we proclaim Christ. These men heard this message. Took them a while to, you know, fully absorb it, but they go out and eventually turn the world upside down. All the world became their harvest field. Because they believed the words of Christ. May we do the same. Let's pray. Father, you are so gloriously sufficient. You've given all that we need 
in the sufficient Savior, the sufficient Seed, the sufficient Son, our Lord Jesus. So many things in life feel uh, fragile, feel risky, feel like it could be imperiled so easily, but this one thing cannot. A sufficient Lord who came and walked this earth and took upon himself our sins. Taking them to the cross to be fully punished by the wrath of God. So that we will never, in believing him, will never face that wrath. We go and we tell Lord Jesus all that you are, all that you've done. We can't fail. You will honor your word. Jesus, as you yourself say in John 10, you have other sheep who were not yet of this fold. I must go and bring them in. That's all we're doing. You have marked out a people for redemption. Let's go tell them. Let's go harvest what you have planted, what you have sown, what you have done and are doing. And at the end of the day, We'll say with the Apostle Paul, I planted, Apollos watered, and God gives the increase. Someday, Lord Jesus, when we get to heaven, the proverbial storehouses of the harvest won't lack one grain, small as it may be. Because out of all those, as you say in John 6, that the Father has given you of that glorious and bountiful harvest which no man can number, you have lost not one. Not one seed, not one kernel. It's all yours because of your sufficiency. May we join you in proclaiming these great truths. Give us power from your spirit to do so. Give us understanding of your word so that we might proclaim it accurately, faithfully, and passionately. And we pray all this for your sake. In Jesus' name, amen.